Hi, welcome to this EVJ podcast on the best of equine medicine. I'm Celia Marr, editor of Equine Veterinary Journal. This podcast is one of three based on British Equine Veterinary Association's scientific review of 2014. The review was first presented at Beaver Congress in September 2014, and three panellists selected the most important and interesting papers published in the last year. For this podcast, the selection of important papers relating to equine internal medicine is presented by Dr. Bettina Dunkel, diplomat of both the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and the European College of Equine Internal Medicine. Bettina is based at the Royal Veterinary College. The panellists have chosen their papers from all journals and they are not limited to EVJ, although EVJ is very well represented in this selection. At the end of the podcast, we will provide details of the papers which have just been discussed so that you can find the papers if you want to read more detail. Good morning, everybody. I'd also like to thank Beaver for inviting me, and I'll um, start off the talk with, um, well, first of all, that there are no disclosures, but second, uh, with uh, two papers that are intimately related to each other, and I assume everybody has at least heard about them because the findings of these in some earlier paper have been widely publicized uh, not only in the equine or veterinary press but also in the layman's press. The first one paper is entitled Identification of Mesaline Cyclopropyl acid, uh, Acetic Acid in the Serum of European Horses with Atypical Myopathy. It's from the Belgian group and was published uh, just recently in 2014. The second one is hypoglycine A concentration in the seed of A subsidoplantus trees growing in atypical myopathy affected uh, and controlled pastures from Angerdal. It's out of uh, Switzerland. And both link into the long-lasting, um, somewhat drawn out, somewhat boring, but uh, initially exciting, or uh, in the end exciting thriller in equine medicine, what causes atypical myopathy. So it all started in uh, sort of the mid-80s when atypical myopathy was described in Europe. And it seems that over the years uh, there were more and more cases not only reported but also noticed to be occurring. There was large investigations going on trying to figure out what was happening. And for once we had a disease that wasn't uh, present in the U.S., so that was nice. Um, 2006, there came a report out of the U.S. We have something that looks close to identical to your atypical myopathy, occurs in the same seasonal pattern. The horses look exactly the same. The blood works um, looks the same. However, we call it seasonal pasture myopathy. And now the search for the underlying uh, etiology was going on in both continents. The first breakthrough came in 2008 by Westerman when um, the group from Belgium reported that the underlying etiology seemed to be associated with a multiple um, acetyl-CoA dehydrogenous a deficiency causing a breakdown, uh, causing difficulties in the um, fatty acid metabolism and also the um, uh, amino acid metabolism in these horses. However, we still didn't know what caused that. In 2012, there uh, was a report out of the U.S. and they found exactly the same problem in the U.S. horses. So the um, evidence that the, the two diseases are really linked was um, coming thick and fast. And the real breakthrough was then published in 2013 by um, Stephanie Wahlberg when she found that the, um, 
that the substrate hypoglycine, which can be found in box elder tree, causes that acquired enzymatic deficiency. So we had a course for the um, eight, a seasonal partial myopathy in the U.S., and for the botanically challenged people, I've put a little tree in here so that you know what it looks like. Uh, the somewhat uh, the response from Europe was, well, we don't have box elder tree. However, the paper that I first mentioned by the Belgian group subsequently showed that metabolites of hypoglycin A are also present in the European horses, confirming that the etiology or suspecting that the etiology is very, very similar. And then uh, hypoglycin A, as we said, the box, box elder tree is very rare in Europe. However, what we do have is a sycamore tree. And the second paper that I mentioned from Switzerland uh, described that hypoglycin A is very prevalent in the sycamore tree. And lo and behold, the sycamore tree is found in all pastures where previously um, atypical myopathy has been reported. So that's what it looks like. And finally, we have uh, an explanation of what atypical myopathy is. And with that, more importantly, a way to prevent it in trying to keep horses away from uh, sycamore trees in Europe and box elder tree in the U.S. during the prevalent season, that being the spring and autumn. The next paper that I wanted to mention is, uh, in, in my mind, an, an equal breakthrough, but I'm somewhat biased as I have a, a heavy interest in folds. It's entitled, Abnormal Plasma Neuroactive Prostogen Derivates in Ill Neonatal Folds Presented to the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit and was published by Monica Allemann et al. There was a, another paper a year earlier in 2012, which was just a short communication uh, and presented by... Uh, the Madigan et al., where they um, infused folds with allopregnanone and um, produced signs that were exceedingly similar to uh, the signs we observe in folds with neonatal maladjustment syndrome or painted asphyxia syndrome, dummy folds syndrome, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and the infusion, basically, the, co the concentration of the plasma progesterogenes um, corresponded very well with the obtundation of the folds. Both papers actually rest on the back of earlier presentations in uh, 1991 and 1995, um, where the pattern of um, steroid hormones in, in normal healthy folds and sick folds was uh, described. And, um, of course, it was Peter Rossdale who um, published these. That's some, something of a little bit frustrating seen in neonatal um, research. Every time you think you've thought of something really new, really brilliant, turns out Peter Rossdale has done that, was there before you, all done beforehand. So anyhow, so he was probably the first one. And the underlying concept of this is actually uh, quite logical when one thinks of um, uh, an embryo or a developing animal in utero, particularly anything that uh, is able to run shortly after being born. Yeah? There must be a way in utero to keep these little things quiet because a foal is born, it can get up and can run similar lamps and... Um, um, calves, um, and so forth. So there must be a way of keeping these animals really still in utero to prevent them causing damage to the dam. And those are largely um, steroid hormone concentration which keep, which keep the animals in a sleep-like state. And then at birth, they fall very, very rapidly, and the animal gets up and is basically awake. So that's the underlying concept of these investigations. And Monica uh, put it all together into one, 
and uh, investigated it more formally and published her um, findings in late 2013. She looked at uh, 32 folds with neonatal maladjustment syndrome, 19 were uh, mild to moderate, 13 severe, and she, she's, she's compared um, these folds to A, normal folds, and B, folds that were sick with other diseases. So typically those would be septic folds, but there were a couple of other things um, thrown into it as well. In the healthy folds, they followed the pattern already described by uh, Peter Rossdales. The steroid hormone really plummeted after birth, and then they're basically gone. However, the neonatal maladjustment um, syndrome folds, as well as the folds sick with other diseases, had um, higher steroid concentration than the healthy folds at various time points. And there were also some differences between the um, neonatal maladjustment syndrome folds and folds sick with other diseases. Now, you'll notice that I'm being a little bit vague on that, uh, these differences, and the reason becomes clear when we're looking at the graph here. It's easiest to follow the healthy folds, which are um, the black lines, and you have uh, several different steroid concentrations here that are depicted over time along the x-axis. And if you follow the healthy ones, you can see high getting low, high getting too close to nothing, 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 nothing. And it's very clearly evident that uh, the neonatal maladjustment syndrome folds here depicted in red have a very, very different hormonal pattern. Uh, as have the um, sick folds that don't have um, dummy fold syndrome, something different. You can see very, very different from the normal folds. However, it's a little bit difficult at the moment to come back, come up with a very clear pattern on what they are doing. Uh, or, and, and the groups don't look particularly homogenous either. So they're clearly different. However, uh, the, the exact pattern still needs to be determined. And part of it is probably the sick fold Fold group probably comprises apples, bananas, and pears, all sorts of different things lumped all together. And similarly, neonatal maladjustment syndrome is a, a large spectrum of a disease, and those are all lumped into it together. So that probably explains the variability here. But it's finally a new explanation for neonatal maladjustment syndrome, a disease that we thought we had understood but never quite really grasped, and the hopes are that uh, these new findings will lead to new treatment opportunities in these folds as well, that we can do something about that. So what can we conclude? There are clearly alterations in the steroid hormone profiles between healthy folds, neonatal maladjustment syndrome, and folds that are sick for other reasons. The increased pregnant concentration could be responsible for the behavioral abnormalities and neurological alterations we observe in these folds, and uh, the differences might reflect um, um, an abnormal transition from the fetal to the uh, neonatal status in these folds. As most of you are aware, uh, recently we had a new formulation of uh, omeprazole introduced here in the UK. It's called peptizole. And there were lots of questions, is, is it going to be as effective? Is one more effective than the other? Um, is it the correct enteric formula that peptizole is in? Is it absorbed at all? So lots of questions. Unfortunately, I didn't find an exact paper to answer this question, but a recent publication looked at something very, very similar. It's out of Switzerland and is entitled Efficacy of a Meprosol Powder Paste or Enteric Coated Formulations in Healing of Gastric Ulcers 
in horses. The product they used is called uh, gastrozole, which is a paste containing entirely coated omeprazole, uh, largely available in Australia, but also increasingly used in uh, mainland Europe and uh, particularly in Switzerland. So that was the underlying reason for the study. The recommended dose uh, is lower than what we use for gastrogut. Gastrogut would be 4 milligrams per kilogram per day. The uh, recommended dose for, gastrogut, uh, for gastrozole is 1 milligram per kilogram per day, and at use at that recommended dose, it is slightly less expensive. So the study design was very good. A prospective randomized blinded study, including 40 horses that had ulcers of at least uh, or greater than 1 the horses were treated for two weeks, either with a recommended dose of gastrogut or with a recommended dose of gastrozole. After two weeks, they were scoped, and then they're swapped over. The horse that had gastrogut previously received gastrozole subsequently, and vice versa. And at the end of the four weeks, they were um, scoped again. There was also a, a pharmacokinetic study done um, in uh, five horses on the first day of treatment. All horses were taken out of their usual training and underwent light exercise only. So if you uh, look at the table here, you can see there are different uh, areas of ulcers, different ulcer scores, and then we have the treatment groups A and B. The baseline ulcer score here, and that decreases all um, ulcer scores basically decrease at the end of the four-week follow-up time, and the most important thing for that study was there were no differences between the two weeks versus the four weeks finding, meaning that both products were equally effective in treating all ulcers, be it in the squamous or in the glandular mucosa, or taking them all together. The uh, pharmacokinetic study did find some differences between the two formulations. The maximum concentration in the plasma did not vary between um, between horses, so if we're looking at the graph, uh, that looks like uh, maybe a couple more horses could have made a difference. However, what did vary was the plasma concentration over time and the area of the curve on the concentration time curve was significantly higher for gastrogut. Now, logic would say that you would probably expect that if you're feeding a horse four milligram per kilogram versus one milligram per kilogram, Yes, one would potentially expect higher plasma concentration. Uh, looking at the bioavailability, surprisingly, gastrozole was 1.26 times more, had a higher bioavailability compared to gastrogard. So the concerns that were raised uh, in regards to the formula that it wouldn't be absorbed, that it didn't have the correct enteric coating, were um, unfounded. What can we conclude from that? Gastrogot and gastrozole both promote healing of gastric ulcer. One does it at one milligram per kilogram, the other at four milligrams per kilogram. And of course, the interesting tagging on question would be what happens if we feed uh, gastrogot at the quarter of the dose. The plasma concentration of omeprazole used as a recommended dose are higher than those of gastrozole. However, that doesn't seem to impact on gastric ulcer healing.
The next study that I picked is from the full respiratory tract section, and it is from Monica Venner and her group, and uh, Steve Shiger also contributed. It is a comparison of tulatromycin, azithromycin, and azithromycin rifampin for treatment of mild pneumonia associated with rhodococcus equi. It was published in Vet Record in 2013. And again, the background to the uh, paper is actually quite interesting. Monica Venner has published several papers uh, in the past, and one of the uh, most interesting ones was a 2012 paper where she showed that small pulmonary lesions in rhodococcus fall uh, improve without therapy as quickly as they do with antimicrobial therapy. And that is quite an essential finding. She uses an abscess score, which is basically adding up the diameter of all the um, abscesses found in one fold and lumping them all together. So if you have five one-centimeter abscesses, you will have an abscess score of five. Uh, there's also a report, there are also reports of uh, increasing development of resistance. They're largely coming out of Kentucky, where the big breeding areas are, but one can assume that something similar is also happening in other regions of the world. And that development of uh, resistance is largely sought to arise from the use of macrolides and rifampin in subclinical lesions in these folds. And based on Monica's work, we now think that that might be a, a significant overuse of antimicrobials. Then um, uh, Monica also published some work on tulatromycin. And uh, in 2007, she showed that the abscess resolution between tulatromycin and azithromycin and rifampin uh, seemed to be uh, the same. So there was no difference between it. At that stage, she didn't have a placebo group in it because we didn't quite know about those findings yet. And as it is in veterinary medicine, uh, somebody publishes the clinical effects of um, drug X, and then several years later, somebody else comes along and either does a bioavailability study and finds that the drug isn't absorbed at all. Or um, in that case, um, Carlson showed that uh, tulatromycin actually has no in vitro activity against IQI whatsoever at concentrations that might be achievable in vivo. So that put a bit, little bit of a damper on the um, 2007 paper. And uh, Monica wanted to uh, repeat the study essentially and see whether it was all just a placebo effect or whether there was something to it. And uh, something else that has been missing for a long, long time in the uh, rhodococcus studies is that traditionally everybody has been using amacrolide and rifampin because both drugs are um, synergistically in vivo, in vitro, and um, once somebody has started it, everybody keeps doing it. But nobody has looked at or compared the efficacy of amacrolide plus rifampin versus amacrolide alone, which could save you some costs potentially. So that was all done in a single study here. Um, the conclusion inclusion criteria with an abscess score of uh, 8 to 15, so slightly larger than the previously used uh, subclinical group, a vital count less than 23, and um, they didn't need to have uh, signs of clinical disease, so we had uh, clinical and subclinical folds in the group. However, if the abscess score was greater than 15, the white cell count was exceedingly high, or the folds had obvious dyspnea, they were excluded from the study, basically because it was thought not to be um, ethically to include, um, to, inc uh, to treat these folds with a placebo and risk um, them dying, essentially. We had four treatment groups, uh, tulatromycin used at the recommended dose, azithromycin alone, 
azithromycin combi combined with rifampin, and then a placebo group here as well. Uh, the therapy was discontinued once either clinical science had uh, resolved or if there was no sonographic evidence of consolidation for two consecutive weeks after a minimum of six weeks treatment. Faults were removed from the study if um, they developed dyspnea or if the abscess scores basically progressed to greater than 18 centimeters. And what did they find? Uh, a smaller proportion of faults required a change in therapy when treated with azithromycin or azithromycin and rifampin compared to placebo, meaning much fewer, fewer faults uh, worsened during treatment. There was a faster decrease in the number of abscesses and abscess scores with azithromycin or azithromycin with rifampin compared to the placebo. And uh, the proportion of recovered faults was not different between tulatromycin and placebo. Also, if you look at the numbers, the numbers are, the, the percentages are quite strikingly different. However, statistically, there wasn't a difference between those two. So what can we conclude? Uh, therapy of faults with um, a lesion score for between 8 and 15 centimeter definitely benefits from um, use of antimicrobials, fewer faults progress to more severe disease, and you have a faster resolution of abscesses. So that's good to know here. Yeah, while um, the small lesions probably don't require treatment, the larger ones will benefit from it. And uh, monotherapy with azithromycin, at least in that disease group, seemed to be just as effective as azithromycin and rifampin. The verdict on tulatromycin is probably still out there um, at the moment. Based on that study, it looks like previous study was largely placebo effect, but that still needs to be confirmed or refuted. Okay. Through some very, very interesting and hot off the press internal medicine topics covering really hot off the press, you know, the etiology of atypical myopathy and seasonal pastor myopathy, some fall work, ameprazole issues, and, and enterococcus. Have, have you got any questions for Bettina from the floor before we have a, a general discussion? Can I just ask, um, Bettina, I think that was one of the best slides I've seen in terms of a, a summary about the etiology of atypical my, myopathy and seasonal pasture, especially for people like me who are incredibly botanically ch challenged, as you say. Um, now that we are really, uh, it's exciting that the etiology seems to be in our, in our grasp now and, and we have a greater understanding. Do you think that knowledge now will facilitate and help the avoidance of this syndrome? Will it well, are there practically you know, issues that it will help? Uh, I, I, I hope it will help. I think it will help. Um, there are already people chopping down sycamore trees, guys, left, right, and center uh, in the close proximity. However, the wind blows, and it's largely in, in, in the seeds, and there are these little propeller-type things that really can be carried quite far away. So short of deforesting the U.K., I think there will always be the occasional case, but with people knowing about other preventive, preventive uh, measures such as feeding horses, keeping them indoors, looking out more carefully, I'm hoping that we can drastically reduce the occurrence of atypical myopathy at least. Absolutely. Now, that is exciting. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Any other questions? For a yeah, for well, I was just... Um, now we know the, um, the actual mechanism action, is there any targeted therapies that we can direct towards that? 
Not that I have heard of okay. yet. No. Um, and um, so uh, I know, I mean, I just um, was watching the RBC's uh, television program the other day and I noticed Dan Chan was uh, doing the um, plasma electrophoresis for the uh, New Forest um, 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 syndrome um, mm. dogs. I mean, would that be something would you be able to, um, you know, just wheel out of the Queen Mother and, uh, mm-hmm. and use in a clinical case mm. in, in your uh, hospital? I think it's such a quick disease that mm. you would, and particularly also quickly progressing. You know, the most common signs that you find the horse is dead or in the stages of mm. dying. So I think you would, need, you would need to be exceedingly quick to actually catch them. And then we arrange with the Queen Mother Hospital, we are particularly happy when <coughs> marching in there in our coveralls to yeah. get them uh, onto the electrophoresis. It's a good idea, so, yeah. but I think the practicalities are far off. Mm. Bettina, horses have been around a long time, trees have been around a long time. What, why do you think that we're now just... Uh, are horses changing? Are trees changing? Mm, no, or, or are we changing? <laughs> I, I don't know the answer, but certainly there is a, there is a, a develop, develop, developmental pressure on certain plant species as well. So we have uh, the, the, the natural environment is changing. I don't know why the, uh, whether the sycamore tree is a particularly adopted tree that can grow faster, better, and is more prevalent now than it was previously. Another thing that seems to happen in plants that was entirely new to me is that um, there, there are sort of uh, bumper years where you have a huge crop of certain things. It's very known for much known for acorns and also for maples, actually, where, where uh, trees are shedding an ex- uh, extraordinary amount of um, seeds in one year and then sort of falls down. So whether that is playing a role as well, that you see a lot of cases in one year and then uh, none of the others. It's always been more of a sporadic um, disease. Mm. So the, the equine population was never at danger of um, dying out from atypical myopathy, but I, uh, I don't think we've quite grasped on what's causing that increase in cases now. Thank you. That concludes the Scientific Review podcast. I'm now going to give a summary of the papers reviewed by Bettina. There are no declarations from the authors. The first was entitled Identification of Methylene Cyclopropyl Acetic Acid in Serum of European Horses with Atypical Myopathy by Vaushan et al, published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, 2014, volume 46, pages 146 to 149. The second was entitled Hypoglycin A Concentrations in Seeds of Acer Pseudoplatanus Trees Growing on Atypical Myopathy Affected and Control Pastures by Angra et al, published in the Journal of Veterinary Internal Medicine, 2014, volume 28, pages 1289 to 1293. The third paper was titled Abnormal Plasma Neuroactive Progestogen Derivatives in Ill Neonatal Foals Presented to the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit by Ailman et al., published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, 2013, volume 45, pages 661 to 665. The fourth paper was titled Allopregnalolone Infusion-Induced Neurobehavioral Alterations in a Neonatal Foal. Is this a clue to the pathogenesis of neonatal maladjustment syndrome? By Madigan et al., published in the Equine Veterinary Journal Supplement, 2012, pages 109 
to 112. The fifth paper was titled Efficacy of Omeprazole Powder, Paste or Enteric Coated Formulation in Healing of Gastric Ulcers in Horses by Berkman et al. Published in the Journal of Veterinary and Inter Internal Medicine, 2014, volume 28, pages 925 to 933. The sixth paper was titled Comparison of Tulithromycin, Azithromycin and Azithromycin Rifampin for the Treatment of Mild Pneumonia Associated with Rhodococcusequi by Venner et al. Published in the Veterinary Record, 2013, volume 173, pages 397.